Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Fair Voice. Again, we have on Robert Boylan, and today we're just going to be having a conversation about how to learn Greek and Hebrew, why you should do it, so that way you can read the Bible with more accuracy, and it can really enrich your biblical studies. I feel like a lot of church members could super benefit from reading the Bible in the original language. This is a tradition in a lot of other denominations of Christianity, not so much our own, which I find really interesting. So I would really like to have a higher emphasis on this. So Robert, could you just tell us a little bit about how you got into Greek and Hebrew? Uh, gladly. Uh, and thanks for having me back on the podcast, by the way. Um, my initial degrees were in theology and anthropology. And for my theology degree, uh, which was at the pontifical uh, in Minuch, a Roman Catholic institution and seminary, um, we actually did a number of coursework uh, courses in Greek and Hebrew. In fact, uh, even as an undergrad, I was allowed to do postgraduate level Hebrew and Greek. Um, I loved it that much. So, um, and that provided like the tools to like expand out and like to read um, various texts in the Old and New Testaments in the original languages, uh, sometimes with some ease, sometimes with some difficulty because there are of course difficulties and even when you know the original languages, um, you know, you have to know the world, the text, but you know, that's basically the, um, the very brief overview of my studies. That was about 2006, 2007 when I started. And I tried to use some Greek and Hebrew in my daily studies, even just for fun. Um, so, and also my blogging as well. Yeah. And I, similar to Robert, I've done a lot of Greek and Hebrew in college. I actually started out doing Greek and Hebrew in believe it or not, 2006 as well. But here's the thing. I was a bit younger than most people who start doing Greek and Hebrew. I was eight years old at the time. Um, so I've done a lot of language. I was 19. This, <laughs> 19, yeah. And this was, this was just done in a classroom informally. I went to, I went to a pretty good uh, middle school and high school that had a Latin offering. But what happened is I just got so ahead on Latin that my teacher stuck me in the back and was like, okay, so do Greek and Hebrew too, because you're just ahead at Latin. And I started out college doing graduate level Hebrew, Greek, and Latin as well. So I've done a lot of it too. And I love using it in my daily studies. What grammar did you use? I, I think that this is really the first place to start with, with doing this is like, what, what book did you use for Greek and Hebrew? Um, and I'll share what book I used too. Sure, um, because we want to keep this like to an introductory level. We won't be going into like say some of the complex things, but um, the first book we used for Greek was Jeremy Duff, The Elements of New Testament Greek that was published by Cambridge. And we used two Hebrew texts. Uh, one was by Thomas Lambden, Introduction to Biblical Hebrew, which was rather accessible. And the other by Weingreen, W-E-I-N-G-R-E-E-N, -E -E A Practical Grammar for Classical Hebrew. Uh, we switched to Lambden because many people struggled with the uh, King James-like prose of Weingreen, but they were the two texts in Hebrew that we used in uh, Midrash. Yeah, I actually also use Lambden too. BYU has used Lambden for a number of years, but I actually believe that they're switching um, from Lambden because I think Lambden is going out of print, which is really sad. So please order your copy of Lambden today. Um, luckily, I don't get paid to plug Lambden. I wish I did. Just kidding. The, the commission on that would be like seven cents. Um, but <laughs> another, another good uh, Hebrew grammar though, uh, and maybe a bit more complex, but it's pretty good, is by Johan and uh, Maruka. Uh, I'm probably butchering their surnames. 
a grammar of biblical Hebrew, uh, which was published by the Pontifical in Rome. So, uh, you know, uh, that would be something also to aim for once one becomes a bit proficient in the um, language as well. And yeah, great uh, grammar beyond the basics by Wallace. Yeah, those are really good suggestions. For Greek, my my number one suggestion besides those is Lushnig and Mitchell's An Introduction to Ancient Greek a Literary Approach. I think that that's a really good one. Um, it's for Attic Greek, but the thing is you can use an Attic Greek textbook and it works perfectly fine for Koine Greek because the differences are very minimal and there are things that you can pick up on pretty naturally. So th- those are our suggestions for those books, but let's talk a little bit about why, why you should do this. Robert, why do you think we should encourage those people who listen to my podcast to, you know, read Greek and Hebrew? This seems, this seems really hard, you know? Well, it is hard, but like, um, you know, it is worthwhile for a number of reasons. Uh, firstly, um, of course, the Bible, which we put on a pedestal as one of the standard works of the church, was not written in English. It was written originally in Hebrew and Aramaic when it comes to the Old Testament and Kine Greek when it comes to the New Testament. So the analogy that's often used is if you use a very good English translation, you're watching a sports game, like a football match at home on your TV. But if you're reading in the original languages, although you're not one of the players on the team, you still have to know other teams as well, like the world attacks and the culture. You're actually in the stadium uh, viewing teams as they go on, if you will. That's, I think that's a helpful analogy to understand like the um, help when it comes to knowing the original languages. And there's some things that are lost in translation, no matter which language you use that can only be recovered when it comes to Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic, like word plays and other, uh, sometimes even more theologically important topics. Um, another reason is like, you know, I think Joseph Smith was a very good example for us because, you know, he was a prophet of restoration. He received direct revelation from God, of course, but even then he sought out knowledge when it comes to uh, Hebrew. For instance, he hired a um, Joshua Seishas and then later Alexander Nybar to teach him and early members of the church uh, Sephardic Hebrew. And that played a very important role when it comes to how Joseph approached uh, transliterating terms in Hebrew, like as we see in the Book of Abraham and the King Full of Discourse. And of course, you know, if you're a nerd like we are, uh, it's fun as well. You know, um, and also if you're a fan of Star Trek, um, it kind of makes sense, you know, you, you have an early introduction when it comes to the Vulcan green sign, but I think that's a uh, topic for a different day. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that that's really true. And I like when people bring up Joseph Smith, there's a really good paper on this and it's called Joseph Smith as a student of languages by Stephen Smoot and Dr. Stephen Ricks. And this paper focuses on how, um, yes, Joseph hired someone to teach him biblical Hebrew and he had cursory knowledge of Greek and German and also did a tiny bit of Egyptian. And the Egyptian obviously is for the book of Abraham, which, you know, we, we don't have the original text of the book of Abraham, but just thinking about how you can learn these languages to try to understand the mind of a people. I think one of the big reasons for me why I started learning Hebrew and continued learning Hebrew in college wasn't so much that I loved the language. I, I have a very deep love of Greek, Latin, Coptic, and Middle Egyptian. Those are my jam. Hebrew, I, I wouldn't say that I aesthetically like the language as much, which I understand is a pretty unpopular opinion. Most people are Hebrew obsessed, but I like it, one, for the purpose of reading scripture. That's really why I like it. But two, I like thinking about languages 
as a way to understand a people. Um, I think that if you think very deeply about the way that a, a, a particular language structures ideas and sentences, you, you can reveal something about the person. The best example is actually the example that Donald Perry uses at the very beginning of his classes, where he asks us, are you a father or do you do or do you do fatherly things? And most of us would say, well, I mean, I'm a woman, so I would never say that I'm a, I'm a father. But, you know, if you're, if you're a man and you have kids, you would say, well, I'm a father. But within Hebrew, the structure makes it so that you more do fatherly things as opposed to being a father in terms of Semitic, the, the Semitic ideas behind it, which are more action oriented. That's the way that Donald Perry puts it. It's not a perfect example, but it illustrates the point, which is that within Hebrew, there's more emphasis placed on verbs than there is on nouns and adjectives. This differs from Greek, which is a very, 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 very noun adjective heavy language. Um, so I just think thinking about the grammar too can be really helpful. So we've given you some resources, but we just really need to talk for a few minutes about how you can get started. Cause it's really intimidating, you know, like you go onto Amazon and you buy a textbook and then it gets there in a day because Amazon is crazy and can ship things out in like 24 hours. Um, but you don't know what to do from there. So Robert, like if you were talking to someone like fresh off the street, fresh believer who is who has in their hands a Greek and a Hebrew textbook, and mind you, you do should probably get a copy, uh, like a Greek New Testament copy and a Hebrew copy. I like NA28, that's Nestle Allen 28th edition for Greek. It's a very accessible copy of it. I think it's actually like 30 bucks. Um, so you should get a copy of that. And then for the Hebrew Bible, the standard edition of the Hebrew Bible, uh, by the way, these will all be linked in the description, just so you can see what we're talking about. The standard edition of the Hebrew Bible is the, the Biblia Hebraica. Biblia Hebras doesn't I've never studied German, so don't hold me to that pronunciation, but the BHS is how it's abbreviated. Yeah, the BHS, But there's also yeah. the, uh, BHQ, but that's in multi-volume. Yeah. So just get the BHS. Yeah. I haven't studied German either. That's why like, I like, we have the video on and I was staring at Robert as I was trying to say it. So um, just buy, buy those copies. Um, definitely buy those copies. Um, so that way you can know what you're talking about. But Robert, so we have in our hands a Greek New Testament. We have in our hands a Hebrew Bible and we have in our hands a textbook. How do we, how do we go? How do we go from here? Well, I would, uh, I would suggest when it comes to any topic you want to learn, not just a language like, say, a musical instrument or any new skill, um, you set realistic goals. You know, you can have the goal, like, I'll become fluent in biblical Greek and kind of um, biblical Greek and uh, Hebrew, you know, tomorrow, but that's unrealistic. You'll have to set, like, manageable, realistic goals. And the second is, like, to go through the very basics very slowly. When it comes to Greek, for instance, believe it or not, you, f you first should know your English grammar. And if you struggle with English grammar, you should learn English grammar, like what genitives are, what datives are, what verb tenses mean and what they denote. And when it come, and the same when it comes to Hebrew, although uh, as an Irish speaker, um, Hebrew is not as bad um, because it's very similar to Irish grammar. So that was a help. So I would say suggest, uh, make sure you know how language works, grammar and other basics before you delve into a new language. Uh, that's the very first thing we were taught when we were learning these languages. 
and set realistic goals, like 10, 15 minutes each and every day, like maybe do it with your daily scripture reading. So you'll get to do it every day and try to make it fun as well. You know, if you have another friend who's doing it, you know, um, learn off them, meet up with each other and like compare notes and like maybe even quiz each other. And also make cards when it comes to verbs and nouns and test yourself every so often. For instance, if you're waiting for the bus, maybe pop out your notes and just like uh, go through like one or two words and test yourself when it comes to how to conjugate them and so forth. And if you set like a realistic goal after like say six months, 12 months, 18 months, you know, you'll eventually reach uh, certain goals and certain levels when it comes to reading languages, understanding lexicons, understanding some of the more complex things. Like um, one of the more complex things when it comes to Greek is like the iris tense and also verbal aspect, you know. Uh, so once you have like all the um, basics done and you have it, you know, where you enjoy doing it, where it's fun, when it comes to like some of the um, humps you'll come across, like verbal aspect and the nuances of the genitive case in Greek, you'll eventually uh, overcome some of the humps you'll come across as well. So like they would be like the very basic goals as well. Yeah, I think that's a great way of summarizing it. And I just want to add a couple thoughts too. I think with Greek and Hebrew, some important things to remember are the, the alphabets are different. So the first thing you have to know is you have to drill that alphabet into your head. My Coptic professor, um, Dr. John Gee, said something that has really stood out to me. And he said, if you were to be woken up at 3 a.m., you need to be able to recite the alphabet backwards. And I, I think that that's a good and humorous way of describing it. So you got to make sure that you really know your alphabet. That That's the biggest thing, at least for me. And be able to write the alphabet too. Oftentimes with Greek, people will just learn the lowercase letters because most textual additions have mostly lowercase letters. Um, this is just a weird quirk about Greek, but they'll they'll sometimes just not capitalize things um, because all Greek manuscripts are just all capitalized. For, but for some reason, when people transcribe them, they're like, oh, these are all capitalized. So we're just going to make everything lowercase. I don't really get it, but they did that. So make sure you really know the alphabets, hammer those in um, super duper hard. Um, and this is where I differ from a lot of people in learning an ancient language. And this is how, the, the reason I probably differ from a lot of people in, in this is because this is how I learned ancient languages. So I'm really partial to this method, but this method might not be for everyone. So some of you might want to go the more traditional textbook route and talk and do what Robert suggested, you know, drill grammar and verb forms um, very well. Um, here's what I did. So the two different perspectives, which is why I had Robert on, because I knew that he was more of a, you know, you're, he, he is a better student probably <laughs> than I, I would be. Um, what I did is I took sentences from original texts the first week that I could read the alphabet. So I would just pull open the NA28 um, or I'd pull open, you know, a copy of the Hebrew Bible or whatever text I wanted to read. And I would try to translate it using a lexicon and using the grammar. So I would look up pretty much every single word. And, and when we talk about looking up words, this is something that you need to, you need to do. This is 100% the best tip for learning any language. You need to study vocab. <laughs> You have to know vocab, otherwise you're going to epically fail. So I'll link some frequency lists in the description. Uh, but 
make sure that when you, when you come across a word that you don't know, that you write down the original form of it. And what's the original form? What do I mean by that? So when you, when you, when you're reading a language like Greek and Hebrew, they're, they are inflected to a degree, which means that they have endings that change and prefixes that change. You need to write down the root form of the word and you need to write down the definition. I have composition notebooks full of these things. So what I would suggest is if you are more of a traditional learner, you know, if you really excelled in college, I would say that you sit down with the textbook and you do it that way. But I would say if you might be a bit more of a non-traditional learner, I have ADHD, um, so this was very helpful for me. Um, it might be it might be useful to just take, you know, a, a passage from the Greek New Testament, write it out on a piece of lined paper, skipping every other line, and then just go through and look up every single word and identify the function of them. I think that that's another way that you can do it. And if you're going to do that, Robert, what what sections of the Greek New Testament and Hebrew Bible do you think are easier to read than other sections? Well, some, the Gospel of Mark is pretty straightforward when it comes to the vocabulary. Now, it's, if you were to delve into, like, literary issues, it's pretty complex, but in terms of the vocab, it's it's not too bad. And the same when it comes to, like, say, the Johannine epistles. Not the Gospel, but the Johannine epistles. So there's some text there. Like, um, I think everyone, when it comes to the Old Testament, though, is, like, familiar with Genesis, because it's a lot of it is prose, and we already know, like, the general gist. And the vocabulary is not too bad as well. So they would be good places to start. Some more complex places would be uh, the epistle to the Hebrews when it comes to Greek. I mean, if you can translate that, you know you're over the hill now. Um, but yeah, I would suggest like um, suggest start maybe when it comes to say the historical narratives like Genesis and Exodus where the vocabulary is not too bad and it's pretty accessible but challenging at the same time. And when it comes to the New Testament, maybe like some of the smaller epistles, not Jude, because that's actually pretty complex, but for a second third John, the Gospel of Mark's not too bad. Um, the, the, I think there's a chapter, chapter 27 or 28 in Acts, where it's just basically nautical terms. So that would be one to avoid until you're um, pretty confident when it comes to Greek. But otherwise, uh, Acts is not too bad as well. Yeah, I, I think those are really great suggestions. And so, one thought that I had when you were talking is I was thinking about how you should read these texts aloud too. Um, this is this is again a personal opinion. It, it'll depend. It'll differ from you know teacher to teacher. We're just giving you our lived experience, um, really, with this and our wisdom, um, which is not that much. But I will say that I had. <laughs> I've had, um, let's see, how many years? I've had, I'm, I'm 22 now. I've had more than 10 years. Oh, wow. That's, this is the only thing I can say I have more than 10 years of life experience with. I've had more than 10 years of experience learning ancient languages. And the teachers that pushed me and the professors that pushed me to read it aloud always, always made a bigger impact on me. And the reason for this is, you're talking about a language that is very unfamiliar to you. And if you just keep it on the page, it'll become more of a mechanical exercise as opposed to a natural reading experience. So I do think that translating very mechanically at first is very important. You need to be able to identify every single word in a sentence. That's how you know if you're good at a language. If you can open up to a page in a text, not necessarily a random text, but a text that you have read parts of. Um, so like, you know, for me, I know that I'm doing well with Greek when I can 
flip open to a page of an early Christian father or flip open to a page of the New Testament and I can identify the function of every single word in the sentence. I might not know the meaning of every single word in the sentence, but I can identify what each word is doing. Um, And I can read it aloud and I can understand what it is saying without necessarily knowing the exact translation of it. That's the point that you want to get to. But to get to that point, you have to be able to exactly translate things. So I would say make sure to read it aloud too. Um, But we got to remember the purpose of this. We're not reading this language just because we want to know the language. It's not like it's not just knowing like German or like Spanish or whatever, though those are great things to know. Robert, can you talk a bit about not necessarily the why of learning languages, but how believers can use these languages to enrich their study of the Bible and also comparing it to the Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price, Joseph Smith history, that sort of stuff. Sure. Sure. I'll give one example, and it might seem a bit odd at first, but um, bear with me. The uh, verb in Greek, logizomai. It's sometimes translated to reckon, to credit. The Apostle Paul uses it a lot when it comes to the topic of justification and salvation. Now, in the King James that Latter-day Saints use in the English-speaking world, it's sometimes mistranslated, uh, especially in Romans, as to impute. Now, imputation is like a Reformed or Calvinistic doctrine where basically one declares someone to be, say, righteous, but they're not actually intrinsically righteous or made righteous, uh, you know, to impute is basically to uh, cover, but not to change the nature of someone or something. And that's like very important when it comes to like the Reformation doctrine of sola fide and forensic justification. However, if you do a lexical analysis of this, and I have, of all the instances of logizomai in the intertestamental period and the apostolic fathers, it does not mean to impute. It actually means a mental representation or declaration of a reality someone or something that is one is logizomide to butcher the greek because they've either been made righteous or they've been or uh they were righteous already and it's a declaration of a past reality so when the apostle paul says that abraham was he had his fate reckoned to him as righteousness and all this other reckoning or logizomizing if you will of righteousness it's not a alien imputation as a Calvinistic theology holds you, it's actually a declaration, a mental representation of God based on a reality that is Abraham and all believers are considered or logizomite as righteous because they have been made righteous. And that's a very important theological nuance. Um, and that's something that's reflected in, say, Book of Mormon theology, the Doctrine and Covenants. God basically does not engage in a legal fiction where he declares someone righteous who is not truly righteous. He declares someone righteous because they are righteous, either by impartation or because of prior acts, they have proven their righteousness. And an example would be, even like when the legal context would be Deuteronomy 25, where the judge declares someone to be guilty or innocent of blood guiltiness. The judge makes the declaration, not because of an imputation, but because the person is guilty or is innocent. And in the same way, when it comes to Paul's theology and understanding of this verb and his contemporaries' understanding of this verb as well, it does not support the idea of imputation. It actually supports the idea of either impartation or infusion. And that's a really good point. Um, I think that that is 
a good example to show how there's this nuance that it, that exists that you can discover once you know a language a bit better. I just want to give two examples. These are not my own. These are actually from our prophet, President Nelson. And I think that this is a great example. I will say, you know, as I hear President Nelson use Greek and Hebrew in his conference talks, I just get really excited. Um, so I want to talk about actually three examples. So there was one moment that I will never forget in my academic career. I was talking with a professor, this was a couple of years ago, and he said, hey, Hannah, can you compile every instance that a general authority has used Greek or Hebrew in their conference talks or in their social media posts? This was probably the best this was the best assignment that anyone could give me because I got paid to just read conference talks all day and, and read Apostle's social media posts. But I was astonished by the number of times that they have referred to the Greek and Hebrew and the number of times that they've actually low-key encouraged us to do so too. There was an Instagram post, I forget who did it, it was two years ago, about how you should use different translations to try to understand the meaning of something. And he had like I think like six or seven versions of the Bible up there. And I think that that's also a really good thing to keep in mind too when you're translating is something that I like to do too is I like to have a bunch of different translations of the Bible and just compare. Um, I like to write out my own translation and compare the translation with other commentaries and compare it with other Bible um, translations just because you can see that one, there's different manuscript traditions and that there'll be different words left out in some areas and things like that. But two, you can also see that the choices that you're making are interpretive. That's that's a very important thing to remember. All translation is a level of interpretation. So the King James translation, we use the KJV, obviously, we use the King James version. The King James translation is an interpretation of the Greek. So there are choices being made about what an English equivalent is, and those choices differ from then to now. And what I mean by that is I'm not saying that the KJV isn't the one that we should be using. I trust the prophets and apostles for that. But what I am saying is that words in English change meaning over time. So if you think about it, a lot of the KJV language might have a slightly different meaning when it was translated than it does for us now. So it's really important to use English dictionaries like the Webster's 1828 dictionary. That's a good online one um, for reading Book of Mormon or for reading KJV or even better, the Oxford English dictionary um, to just compare these things. But here are the two examples that I wanted to bring up. So this first one is from President Nelson's talk, Repentance and Conversion. This talk was given a long time ago. It was given in 2007. Um, and here's what President Nelson says that really stands out to me. The doctrine of repentance is much broader than dictionary's definition. When Jesus said repent, his disciples recorded that command in the Greek language with the verb metanoio. This powerful word has great significance. In this word, the prefix meta means change. The suffix refers to uh, four important Greek terms. Noos, meaning the mind. Gnosis, meaning meaning. Um, or sorry, meaning knowledge, um, panema meaning spirit, and panoi meaning breath. Thus, when Jesus said repent, he asked us to change, to change our mind, knowledge, and spirit, even our breath. That's the end of that first one. And then the second example is from this past general conference. This is one of the, the coolest moments in conference for me. I totally texted like six people after this talk. 
Um, <laughs> but President Nelson said, for more than 36 years, I've been an apostle. The doctrine of gathering Israel has captured my attention. Everything about it has intrigued me, including the ministries and the names of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their lives and their wives, the covenant God made with them and extended through their lineage, the dispersion of the 12 tribes and the numerous prophecies about the gathering in our day. I have studied the gathering, prayed about it, feasted upon every related scripture and asked the Lord to increase my understanding. So imagine my delight when I was led recently to a new insight. With the help of two Hebrew scholars, I learned that the one of the Hebraic meanings of the word Israel is let God prevail. Thus, the very name of Israel refers to a person who is willing to let God prevail in his or her life. That concept stirs my soul. The word willing is crucial to this interpretation of Israel, etc. The important part here, there's a couple things I want to point out first, is that he turned to the Hebrew and he learned what Israel could mean. The other thing is, if you if you paid attention earlier before, he says everything about it has intrigued me, including the ministries and names of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These Hebrew and Greek names have meaning beyond just existing. For for example, the name Hannah, right? We know Hannah from 1 Samuel 1 and 2 when she goes and she prays for a child and the Lord grants it to her and she finds favor with the Lord. Her name means by the grace or favor of God. So these names have a significance that ties them to their biblical context. So we see here that President Nelson is really modeling some great scripture study for us where he's thinking very deeply, not just about what the words mean in English, but what they mean in Greek and even breaking down the words into smaller parts to understand them. So Robert, let's, we're going to transition to Sola Scriptura in a minute here, but the final thing that I wanted to talk about before, before we do that is, could you please give just a two to three minute summary of very, very delineated, just like point by point, the steps that someone should take to learn Greek and Hebrew? Okay, um, Greek and Hebrew are different kettles of fish, as we like to say here. But when it comes to like learning any language, um, and the same when it comes to Greek and Hebrews, make sure you know English grammar uh, first, and you know what a past tense is, you know what a, an imperfect tense is, you know what it denotes its function, and that will help a great deal. Um, also, make sure you kind of get one or two good grammars and uh, lexicons of Greek and Hebrew. You might not understand a lot of it at the start, but like, you know, you should have a good resource for both languages on those scores. And then set realistic goals. Do like 10 or 15 minutes, 20 minutes each and every day initially, um, as opposed to doing one or two uh, lengthy sessions each week. You're not going to learn a language, or most people won't learn languages that way. You have to do it in small incremental steps. And then just like um, whatever helps, you know, uh, if you want to do it like in the way Hannah outlined, um, that will be beneficial if you're if that's how you want to learn the language. The more traditional route is how I learned it, and that's basically uh, testing yourself when it comes to vocab, testing yourself when it comes to verbs, and realizing like you are always going to like make mistakes, you're always going to forget stuff, but don't be disheartened. Um, you know, if like me, you're a bit OCD, it kind of uh, is a bit sucky, but at the same time, you have to keep at it, and also realize like you're not just learning a language just to learn a language, you're doing it because. It's going to be fun. It's going to like help you when it comes to studies, when it comes to scriptures, and always like maybe like try and find a fellow nerdy friend who would want to do it with you, and you can actually do it 
and hit ideas off each other and like uh, quiz each other and what have you. So like have a study buddy, you know, if you can, you know, um, with COVID, you probably have to do it over Zoom, but, you know, be as it may, you know, um, just keep at it and persevere in like in six months, in 12 months, in 18 months, you'll actually see significant differences in terms of like how you understand like uh, the languages and just keep at it, you know, because, you know, it can be fun. It's often challenging, but it's always rewarding, um, you know. Yeah, and I think that the keeping at it part is really, really important. I'm going to share a brief story. This is a very personal story. I sometimes do these personal stories on the podcast, and I get emails ironically saying that the personal stories are better than my insights, but, you know, I think so too, because God orchestrated one. Um, but this, this story is really, really kind of embarrassing, but also really tender. So, I started learning Coptic a couple of years ago and I started learning it when I started learning Hebrew, um, at least like within college. Um, and I hadn't taken any formalized Hebrew or Coptic classes before I had messed around with the languages before, but never had taken a formalized class. And I dropped Hebrew in, in class for about two years, just because I had, I've been taken way too many languages I can only take up to three or four semester um and I dropped Coptic too but then I decided this semester that I would return to Coptic and Hebrew uh, that I would totally be fine and I remember the first week after I had studied these languages for years I, I pulled out some Hebrew and Coptic to just read because we were reading actual text at this point and I did not know what it said at all. I, I looked at it and I was like, this language looks familiar. It seems like it's a language I know, but I don't know what any of this means. And anyone who knows ancient languages has had moments like this where they've opened up the page and you could be studying it right now. Like I could be, I'm in the thick of Greek, right? I do, I've been doing Greek the most consistently out of any language I've ever done. I could open up to a page of Greek on an off day, look at it and be like, yep, none of this is, a, none of this is real. And you just look at it and you're like, what on earth is happening? And I was so frustrated that I actually reached out to one of, to one of my friends who does a lot of ancient languages too. And I told him, and I was like, okay, so I have no idea what any of this says. And I feel like an idiot and I'm going to fail grad school and I'm going to drop out right now because it's not worth it. And, you know, he, he, he bought me some food. And then after that, he and I had a long conversation about how when we're, when we're talking about the scriptures and these languages, something to keep in mind is that we have to be very consistent, but also be very gracious with ourselves. The people who wrote these scriptures were writing them as revelations from God. So sometimes we're going to open up to the page and we're going to feel like we don't know what the heck it's saying. It's going to feel not just like a foreign language, but like a foreign, foreign language. It's going to feel like a language that we haven't read before but sometimes that, that moment when it doesn't make sense, this is what he said, and I think it's really beautiful. The moment when it doesn't make sense gives us an opportunity to look at it with a fine tooth comb more so than we would before and gain more meaning from it. And that's, that's really been true for me. And 
I've, I've benefited from his perspective a lot, um, from taking that step back whenever I look at a text and I'm like, okay, that, that makes no sense. I want to stop. Um, but taking that step back and just really slowing down and remembering that I'm not learning ancient languages because it's like math and I need to do my taxes or something. Um, I'm learning ancient languages because I want to be a better disciple of Christ. And I think that that's one one way to do it. And being a, being a good disciple of Christ, let's be real friends, being a good disciple of Christ, it's going to be hard. If it's easy, you're not doing it right. Um, Amen to that. Yeah. Yeah, I know that sounds really harsh, but but it's true. If you're not, if you're comfortable, you're not growing. Um, but with that being said, we have to talk now about reading the scriptures. And when I say reading the scriptures, I mean really reading. I mean studying them. I mean the our philosophical, philosophical, our philosophical approach to the scriptures. So I want to take a moment and just and share another story, just because we we love sharing stories on this podcast. Um, so sola scriptura. Okay. So sola scriptura is a Protestant term that means by scripture alone. It's actually a Latin phrase. Um, so I had the great pleasure of speaking to a Calvinist over the summer. I have not spent that much time speaking to Calvinists. I'll be perfectly honest with you. Before I moved out to Utah, I spent most of my time with Catholics as I went to a Catholic college and was surrounded by Catholics and did not have much familiarity with Protestantism. Protestantism to me was like a foreign country, essentially. Um, I knew that people were Protestant. I have never entertained the possibility of being Protestant. So it, it just, it just never crossed my mind. So anyways, I knew that sola scriptura was a concept. Um, I knew it was something that people, that people believed. Um, I didn't quite get why. And then I had a Calvinist explain sola scriptura for me for two hours and I was honestly pretty freaked out like I went home that night and I texted one of my friends and I was like I'm really hung up on sola scriptura and I was really I was really like you know like the amount of respect for scripture that's so appealing to me do we just not respect respect scripture as latter-day saints etc I went down this rabbit hole for just like two days um, but you know, I, I feel like those, those like mini, mini faith crises, you know what I'm talking about? Those are, those are really frustrating. Well, and so anyways, this friend actually recommended this blog that someone wrote called scriptural Mormonism. And I was like, what's this? And he sent me a refutation of sola scriptura. And ironically, I had just started talking to the author on Facebook, just independent of, of this, of this moment. And I read the entire refutation of sola scriptura. I felt a thousand times better about myself um, I, I felt like I agreed with it, you know, and I thought it through and I was like, okay, yeah, these are good points. But the re- there, there are three reasons I bring this up. First, the person who wrote that piece is Robert um, and his blog is Scriptural Mormonism. Second, um, I think it's really important to think about how we read the scriptures. I think it's really important to have a philosophical approach to the scriptures. When I say philosophical, I don't mean philosophies of men. Um, as is oft interpreted by that phrase. I mean, you you have to just critically think about the scriptures. The scriptures are there for you to try to understand them. They're not there for you to just be like, okay, cool. They're words that are in a sentence. Um, and then the third reason I bring it up is I think it's really important to think 
issues like this through on both sides. I needed to understand what Sola Scriptura was. I also needed to understand why people believed it. And I also needed to understand why Latter-day Saints don't believe it and what our approach is. And I think all four of these things are really important because otherwise we can be caught really off guard by like I was with this um, by things that we just don't we just don't get. So I wanted to bring on Robert a lot for Sola Scriptura. So Robert, you know, this is really more your thing than mine. Um, let's talk about Sola Scriptura and let's talk about sure. how Latter-day Saints approach the scriptures too. Sure. Well, I think uh, first we should actually define what Sola Scriptura is. Um, Sola Scriptura is the formal doctrine of Protestantism, the material being sola fide or faith alone. And basically, to quote from Article 1, Section 6 of the uh, 1646 Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith and life, is either expressly set down in the scripture, and I will note here for the Protestant, scripture is exhausted by the 66 books of the Bible. So scripture equals the Protestant count of the Bible only. Or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelation of the spirit or tradition of men. So basically that states that the 66 books of the Protestant canon, 39 old, 27 new, are the only God-breed revelation. And although there might be other sources of truth or authority, they're always by nature subordinate to the Bible and they're not God-breed or inspired. So even if someone were to get like a revelation from God, or like uh, even if someone believed contra Westminster, the continuation of the spiritual gifts after the apostolic age, uh, that's always to be subordinated to the Bible. So that's basically a working definition of what soul scripture is. And naturally Latter-day Saints reject that. Um, we of course have a broader scriptural canon. We believe other books are to new styles or God breed. And also we're not actually bound by scripture alone, even with our broader understanding of what scripture is. Not just the 66 books, but the Book of Mormon, Doctrine Covenants, Pearl Great Price. And based on section 91, even some portions of the Apocrypha are probably God breed as well. So. Yeah, I think that that's really important too. Um, with the God breathe thing too, as you mentioned, like it's not necessarily bound to what is in the Bible. And I think that that's exactly. a really Im important part of not being sola scriptura because the thing that actually convinced me most not to be sola scriptura is a very famous um verse that most people use to prove that prophets aren't speaking anymore so i i feel a bit subversive but you know this is how this goes so hebrews I i'm gonna read from the New International Version. This is the version I read it in when I read this. Um, so it's New Inter International Version and it's Hebrews 1, 1 to 4. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets and many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he had spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. 
after he had provided purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Oftentimes, people will use this verse as part of, part of a proof for sola scriptura and also part of a proof for prophets not being alive anymore. Was Sorry, not, yeah, alive anymore. That would work for them. Um, because it says, in the past, God spoke through the prophets, but now he speaks through the Son. But if you read the entire verse, it doesn't exactly say that. It does say that in the past he has spoken through a verse let is probably a better term. It does say in the past he spoke through prophets, then he spoke through the sun. But it also says that the sun went up to heaven. So it doesn't imply the end of prophets. In fact, it would seem natural that prophets would return because now the sun has gone off the earth. And so I just think that... For me, paying attention to the specific way that things are worded is really helpful. And that's what helped me kind of get over Sola Scriptura is remembering that it's not just that scripture is God-breathed and that there are other places that we could say that are God-breathed, but also remembering that scripture itself doesn't say (laughs) by scripture alone. Exactly. And also just when it comes to the Hebrew text, um, absolutizing it as some, not all, but some Protestants do, it proves actually too much. Because Hebrews was written probably prior to the destruction of the Second Temple in 70, and probably even before the Jewish War in 67. So, but he's uh, the author, if you were to just absolutize or an all or nothing approach to that pericope, he's talking about Christ and the Ascension. So if special revelation ceased at the Ascension, it would mean Hebrews cannot be actually God-breathed scripture. And also means that revelation ceased at the Ascension so that would mean that the New Testament is not actually Teopneustos or God-breed as well. In fact, um, Rob Bowman, who's actually an evangelical, he's actually a critic of the church, uh, and we've had our twos and fro's in the past, but he actually wrote the following in response to a Christadelphian who used this text, because absolutizing this text doesn't just prove... Um, it actually, not only does it not prove Sola Scriptura, it could actually be abused to show that at the very least, Jesus as a person was not active in the Old Testament or even pre-existent. And it's actually been used by Christadelphians and other Socinian groups to teach that. But he actually wrote in response to uh, Dave Burke, a Christadelphian who actually used this. Uh, you seem to reach for arguments from Psalms a lot, Dave. I said nothing specifically about verse one because I had a lot of ground to cover and little room to cover it. Verse one poses absolutely no problem for my Christology. God spoke in the past in the prophets. In these last days, he has spoken to us in the sun. This statement has no implications, obvious or otherwise, as to when the sun began to exist. Nor does this statement mean that the sun could have not spoken as the pre-incarnate angel of the Lord. And then he uh, gives other examples. But what he mentions is, uh, he actually warns against a rigid reading of, one, prophets and no sun, and two, sun and no prophets. But we know, as it turns out, that there were prophets after the sun came. Acts 11, 27, 31, 15, 32, 21, 10, 1 Corinthians 12, 28 to 29, 14, 29 and 32 and 37, Ephesians 2, 23, 5 and 4, 11. The author's point is simply that the revelation that came through the sun in these last days represents the climax, the high point of the history of revelation. 
So as much as uh, Bowman and I disagree on many issues, I think he's actually correct. The point of the author of Hebrews is not that special revelation ceased, because if that's the case, it ceased at the essential. Ergo, Hebrews is not God-breathed revelation. Instead, he's just stating that the revelation of Jesus is the revelation per excellence of salvation history. And Latter-day Saints would say amen to that. Yeah, and I, I think that's a really good point too. And something that I'd like to add to that too is with with this idea that, you know, sola scriptura should exist, you have to then discount a lot of verses in the Bible for two reasons. One reason would be that there are some verses that on their face conflict with each other. And I think that this is something that's very under underemphasized. For me personally, it's not really a problem when two verses conflict with each other because I understand that modern prophets can clarify things for us. I understand that the Joseph Smith translation can clarify wording and can clarify ideas and that sometimes, you know, imperfect men write down things in, in, in a way that doesn't make sense to us. And I think the Book of Mormon in the preface says it really well, right? If there are mistakes, they be of men. And I think that applies to the Bible. So that's the first thing is that most Calvinists who I've really pressed on this will say that they don't the, the, the verses don't contradict each other because they can't contradict each other. And then you'll bring up two specific verses and they'll be like, oh, those don't contradict each other because they can't, but I don't know how they don't. And, and that might be a fine position to have as a believer in terms of humility, but at some point you have to realize that that's just wrong. Like there has to be some sort of level of understanding. And for us, we, we often gain that through prophets. And then the second reason is that it assumes that the written word, that the written word is authoritative. Um, and I think that that's really an, imp an important point with Sola Scripture. There's, there's, a, I've encountered a range of perspectives and some people will say that because the Bible was canonized, that there could be some writings that are outside of the Bible that were authoritative that are just not in the canon. Um, and I think that that's kind of a, a waffly position because you would have to you would have to point to a particular consistent standard but the consistent standard given by the bible is in first thessalonians 2 13 when you have received the word of the lord which you heard from us you accepted it not as the word of men but as what it, it is sorry as what it is really the word of god so i think something else to keep in mind is that oral teachings that were outside of the purview of the canon and oral teachings that exist today can still qualify as the word of God being God breathed based on the Bible itself too. And I think that that's where Sola Scriptura falls apart for me, especially is because it, you get to the point where you can say that too much that is not canonized scripture should actually count as scripture and the standard becomes inconsistent. And there's also loads of problems with that as well. Um, first of all, as a Protestant, if you believe special revelations ceased at the death of the last apostle, how, epistemologically speaking, how confident are you that the collection of books are actually what God wants in these pro? Because you could say, well, in these providence, but that's person bugging. And also, if you don't believe that they're inspired by God, you know, um, you may have to be reduced to what RCB Sproul said, like, in for a Protestant, you know, the canon is an is a fallible listing of infallible books. Um, so you're, you're epistemologically speaking, outside of say either 
an external source like a papacy or magisterium or modern revelation, you always have that kind of a nagging question as to the surety that this represents what God wants. And also the idea like, well, there could be missing books that are inspired. Not simply Paul wrote a letter he lost, but he wrote an inspired letter that's lost. That's actually to compromise the concept of tota scriptura, because according to James White and many historical and modern defenders of sola scriptura, tota scriptura has to be in place. That is, all scripture has to be inscripturated before sola scriptura becomes the rule of faith. Prior to that, you're in a time of revelation, and there's other sources that are on par with the written word, like Paul's oral teaching in First Thessalonians and other texts. So that's another issue. And another issue is what I call the word of God equals the Bible fallacy. It's the idea like the word of God and other similar terms is one-to-one -one equivalent to not just written revelation, but sometimes even the Bible. But that's a fallacy because there's many instances where word of God and other locutions are used for non-inscripted revelation, like oral teaching. In fact, to quote one Protestant defender of Sola Scriptura, uh, this is W. Gary Crampton in his book, By Scripture Alone, The Sufficiency of Scripture, mm. page 156. There is a difference between the word of God, which is eternal, Psalm 119, verses 89, 152, and 160, and the Bible, which is not. The Bible is the word of God written. If one were to destroy one paper Bible, or all paper Bibles, he would not have destroyed the eternal word of God. One such example is given in Jeremiah 36. The prophet was told by God to write, what he's, to write his words in a book and to read it to the people. Wicked King Jehoiakim, not comfortable with what had been written, had the written word destroyed. God then told the prophet to write the word down again. The king had destroyed the written word, but he had not destroyed God's word. God's word is eternal propositions to find expression in written statements. Yeah, and I think that that's a really good point. And, and you see very quickly that this whole thing collapses in on itself pretty quickly and pretty, pretty destructively. And at this point, I, I'd like to start to close just by ending on what I think perhaps is the most important takeaway from this is we've talked about how to read the Bible in Greek and Hebrew. We've talked about how not to treat the Bible, but how do we read the Bible? And this might seem like a silly question, but we have to talk about concepts of infallibility. Are scriptures fallible? Um, if they're fallible, how do we still respect them? What's a good approach to the Bible particularly? And I'd, I'd like to add, we've talked about this on the podcast before, one of the problems I see with Sola Scriptura, which some don't consider a problem, but I think it's a problem, is that the Bible comes to us in an imperfect way. So um, it's not like the Book of Mormon, which I, I see the claim for that being the more perfect book because it's given to us intact in a particular language and was translated into a particular language for a particular reason. So I, I do think that we see that as being, you know, the more perfect book. I agree that it's the most correct book on this earth. But with the Bible, you, you can see a textual tradition. You can see multiple textual traditions that lead you to consider whether entire stories are in the Bible. And that's something that we forget about. So you, the woman caught in adultery, I always kind of grin a little bit when someone uses this story as a proof for something, because this story was found quite late. Um, and I believe that most manuscript evidence says that even if the story is legit, it probably goes well with Luke. And I honestly think to me, it's a Lucan story, which is, is fine. I still think it's inspired. I don't care who wrote it. Um, but the thing is, these 
these facts are very important to realize that some stories come to us much later. Some some aspects of some phrases in scripture like Luke 22, 43 to 44, that's a very, very contested set of verses because there are three, not one, not two, but three, Papax legomena. And th- those are, that's a term that means a word that appears once within a corpus. So this dude is straight up using three different words that he's never used before in the set of what, like 20 words. And it's a very, it's a very unique theological concept. The the concept that Jesus literally bled. I mean, that doesn't seem unique to us because we, you know, we have Mosiah, but it's unique for Christians. It's a very unique theological concept. So there are all these little things that I'm like, okay, so if you're sola scriptura, what tradition are you using? Because that's something that I think you have to defend is how, how do you know what's scripture and what's not and the the answer that has been given to me when i've asked this question is the holy spirit and then so then i always ask okay how do you know what the holy spirit feels like and and then that kind of gets into the circular reasoning so can you respond to that and then move on to like how do we read the scriptures well as i documented not by scripture alone the reformed response is actually very mormon sounding for instance if you read the westminster confession of faith uh, they basically come out and say, although there's like good evidence for scripture, the Bible, like prophecy and other things like that, ultimately it's the internal witness God gives the believer that they know, that they know, that they know. So as much as they want to throw sand up in the air at times against us when it comes to Romans 10, 3 to 5, epistemologically speaking, you know, you have Calvin, you have the Westminster Confession, you have, even have Daniel Wallace, a respected reformed Greek grammarian, who basically today says it's the internal witness, the Holy Spirit. Uh, now, when it comes to like text types, although there are some textual variations that are not big deal, sometimes there's just like a word here and there, but it's not a deal breaker. As you know, there's actually some important ones, like um, the blood sweat scene in Luke. You know, is that authentic or is it not? And if it's authentic, you have an extra aspect of Christ's activity in Gethsemane. You know, so much so that Martin Luther and others uh, imputed to it a lot of theological significance. Calvin, for instance, used that as a proof text for Christ descending, not something into Hades, but into hell proper as part of his penal substitutionary theory. Now, I don't think that's taught in the passage, but that shows like there's been this uh, theologically interpretive strand between Protestant of that passage. Um, and if it's not, um, you might, um, you also lose like certain aspects of like um, Christ's atoning sacrifice in Gethsemane and say it only is on the cross um, and a host of other things. So like the problem is like in a pretty precarious situation because if they claim like, well, the Holy Spirit tells me, it's like, well, that sounds very Latter-day Saint, very Mormon. And apparently that's not how, you know, the heart's deceitful of all teens. So how do you know that you know that you know? It's like um, they're in the same quandary they think we're in. But we're actually not epistemologically because we don't believe special revelation ceased at the end of the last apostle, uh, with the death of the last apostle of the New Testament era. So we actually have other sources that we believe to be equally authoritative, like first presidency, quorum of twelve statements, uh, the document covenants, um, and other sources of authority as well that are not just important sources like a creed or a confession that they're tailed nustos and the church also can, when uh, time when the time comes for them to speak authoritatively on a certain issue as well. Uh, so we have a living vice, not something passive authority, uh, Neustos vices like scripture, because scripture is by its nature passive in the church when it speaks, is active. 
So we actually are epistemologically in a better position than a Protestant. And you know, we actually do have a lot of clarifications when it comes to issues that Protestants in the state are divided over, like the doctrine of baptism or regeneration, the relationship between fate, grace, and works, uh, eternal security, predestination, and if so, what's the nature of predestination, and a host of other topics as well that are not minor issues that are central to soteriology, central to Christology. Uh, to give a Christological example, William Lane Craig is a monotelite, but according to the uh, Third Council of Constantinople, that's actually a formal heresy. So who's right? And this is Christology we're talking about. Sola Scriptura won't help you because it doesn't address where Christ has one will or two wills. You know, so uh, yeah, um, that, it, it shows like uh, although there's exegetical biblical difficulties when it comes to Sola Scriptura, when it comes to the practical issues, even to the day, it's uh, 500 years and according to one Protestant apologist, about 8,000 plus denominations. And that's Eric Svensson. So um, we don't have that problem when it comes to Latter-day Saints. Now, we do have other issues that come up, but when it comes to the, those issues, we don't actually have that kind of a theological, exegetical calendar, if you will. Yeah, and I think that that's a really good point. And I like what you said about having living prophets and apostles. I, I think I, I want to close just by saying what has been the most helpful for me. And I think you know, it's really important to read all works of scripture. I, I truly advocate, especially that Latter-day Saints read the Hebrew Bible, because I think we're pretty deficient um, culturally. Um, I think our prophets and apostles are fantastic and they know what's up, but I think we're pretty deficient culturally on the Hebrew Bible in particular. And I, I would invite you to, to pay attention in general conference to how many times the Hebrew Bible was cited this general conference. I don't think that that's a mistake. Psalms was cited like what, six times? Like we had some record number of citations. We had citations of books in the Hebrew Bible that are like almost never cited. So the, that's my first thing is to just read it. That Like just, <laughs> you, you got to start somewhere, yeah. but just read it. And, and just to add to that, what I often tell people is because I love the Old Testament and I know you do as well. What was the only scriptures Jesus had access to in mortality? It was the Old Testament and he quoted yeah. it left, right and center. So if you want to be more like Jesus, you have to be more uh, informed about the Old Testament. Yeah. And I think, I think that's a really good point. The second thing that I wanted to say too, was that you have to be able to read the scriptures in harmony with each other. That's something that is really important. I think you have to be able to compare the Old Testament to the New Testament to the Book of Mormon to the Doctrine and Covenants to the Pearl of Great Price and see how all of these fit together. And I think that that's where footnotes are really helpful, but also just being able to pick up on words that are used, being able to pick up on, on concepts that arise. And that comes as you read the scriptures more. And I think by reading the scriptures in Greek and Hebrew, you're forced to slow down a lot because it's not a language that you know super well. And even when you know it, you still never know it. And you'll once you start reading it, you'll know what I mean by that, but you'll never know it. So you're, you're forced to slow down. You're forced to make it's these basically the, It's basically the phrase, the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. Exactly. Language like that, so. Yeah, like, and you're forced to slow down and that makes it so that you make these tiny little connections to other verses that you wouldn't have made otherwise. And you're able to read things in conjunction more. So I think that's my closing defense for reading, for reading the Bible and reading it in the original languages because you're able to see it as a part of a whole more clearly rather than as just this book that's on your shelf. And 
you know, I'll give Robert a chance to, to have the last word, but I, I like to just share this at the end too. The word Bible, okay, comes from the Greek word biblion. The Greek word biblion literally means book. And that's it. <laughs> Robert, you can have the last word. Uh, no, just like to reiterate what Hannah said, um, you know, as Latter-day Saints, we're actually blessed to have like a high view of scripture. And that includes not just the Bible, you know, it includes the Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price. And, you know, God has given, gifted us the scriptures, you know, as well as like a living bias in the church. So I think we actually show great respect to the scriptures, to the past prophets, and even to modern prophets by making sure we, as much as we can, delve deep into scripture. You know, to live it, of course, is the most important thing, but like to understand it, to interpret it properly. And like when it comes to the Greek and Hebrew and other things like that, like uh, commentaries and lexicons and so forth, you know, uh, we're not just helping ourselves, we're helping others like in our families, in our callings. For instance, I'm a gospel doctrine teacher, or at least I was pre-COVID. Um, and, you know, even like in certain things like my blogging and uh, your podcasting and even like say Facebook and the friends, you might have a crush and, you know, you are helping them because, you know, theology is not just done on a personal level theology is done proper on a community level so like by doing it by helping yourself learn these languages and these tools you're also helping the greater theological community to which you belong to as well you know because we're to use all our uh, tools we're all to, we're to use all our skills to help each other in the gospel yeah thank you for that and thank you for coming on today i think we had a really great discussion My pleasure. thanks for having me Anytime, yeah. Resources will be linked in the cute little description below. Next up, we have some great stuff coming for you. And we have some stuff on the family proclamation. We have some stuff on doctrine and covenants because that's that next for Come Follow Me. Um, so some really great stuff coming up. And that's all I have for today. So thank you for listening.